Hello and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller and my guest today is... Maria Michalis. Prof Michalis, thank you so much for being with us. I love your background. We were just talking about backgrounds, which is a bookcase, but it's a bookcase that has lots of things other than books. It's got pencils in a coffee cup. It's got little plates. It's got some flags, all sorts of stuff. I really like it. It's thank you. It's fake. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike anything. I do like it and I find it um, colorful. And I like it and I use it. Yeah, no, I like I haven't seen it before. But I suppose there are people who make lots of money designing these things for show homes, aren't there? Right? Yes. So maybe that person decided to donate this backdrop. In any event, uh, although those things matter and are very interesting, that's not really what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about your work. And to start off, I'd like to ask you, what's dynamizing you at the moment, Prof. Michalis? What matters to you? What's interesting to you? What's getting you going? Um, okay, what's um, on my mind right now um, is holy crises, as they call it. So many crises coming together. Um. I'm trying to think whether there was a period in history without crisis. I think not. That's one thing. Now, within this crisis, I'm trying to link the macro level with the micro level. So what's happening in the broader picture um, with the micro level being individual action and behavior. And how we need to combine the two, link the two, um, for change to stand the chance, Mm -hmm. essentially. Um, The background, the focus um, is on power. So that's the the key word um, in what I'm interested in and my work. So power structures, power relations. and mostly aspects, invisible aspects of power. So from the very beginning, I was attracted to infrastructure and uh, telecommunications at a time when most people around me were doing television and radio. And that's absolutely fine and fascinating. But for some reason, I was attracted to telecommunications <laughs> and infrastructures, um, which is something that has become more visible nowadays with the Internet, social media, algorithms. Everyone is talking about algorithms and so on. Um, so it's essentially what's happening inside our devices and behind our devices that influences what we get. Yeah, the tide has really turned, hasn't it, in terms of intellectual interest. I can remember when one would start to talk about what used to be called telephony and everybody would fall asleep. Now (laughs) they start looking at their telephones, at least, if they weren't already. But going back to something you said earlier, uh, Prof Maria, that I really appreciated 
that I think is a, an important correction, corrective to some of what is circulating in the ether, as it were, to use an old radio term. <laughs> yes. Namely, that you struggle to think of a time when there wasn't a world in crisis or when there weren't crises around the globe. And you've only got to look at the history of colonialism, imperialism and war to see that. And you've only got to look at geological history, going back to the beginnings of the earth, to see that. And the waves of horror and violence that this planet's gone through to be roughly what it became until humanity mm -hmm. destroyed, or some aspects of humanity. So I really appreciate that corrective. Getting on to the infrastructural issues, yes, this fascinates me, that there is now a newspaper obsession, an everyday talking obsession with a lot of these topics in a way that was reserved often for the financial sections of the paper uh -huh. or specialist telecommunications business magazines, right? So you've gone from being a bit on the periphery in terms of the mainstream of medium communication studies to being someone we all have to listen to. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, there are many more people now um, doing work in this area. Um, and linking that to what we have just been uh, talking about, um, the broader historical context, I think mm. it's fascinating if we think that how much, according to some at least, how much technological change is taking place nowadays. Um, it's fast-paced and all that. And within this context, you have some constant terms, words that are being used, like innovation, like competitiveness, like um, sovereignty, digital sovereignty, um, digital growth. Um, and these are not new concepts. They have been around for a very, very long time. Um, they are being used still today. I find it intriguing um, that they are still around, but it's also very interesting to, to see how they're being used today um, and not necessarily in the same way by all parties, uh, all groups that are talking about them. Could you um, talk a bit more about that? Um, yes. So, for instance, um, digital sovereignty is a concept, is a concept that's, um, very much in fashion. Everyone is talking about digital sovereignty, um, <clears throat> in, uh, in the US, in China, in uh, the European Union, in Britain, everywhere. Um, I mean, sovereignty as a concept. Um, has been around us for a long time, but it's been kind of an empty concept. I mean, in practical terms, did we ever have sovereignty? Um, so it's like an ideal. It's always been an ideal in my mind, rather than something that's, that has been real. Um, so again, it's used for specific reasons. 
Um, and nowadays in the broader geopolitical context, it makes um, more sense in a way to use it. And then you try and think of digital sovereignty and, for instance, supply chains. Um, so thinking about rare minerals, they come, most of them, from Africa. Um, then you think of manufacturing, um, for instance, iPhones and all that, and you think of China. You think of semiconductors that are in all our devices from the most basic to the most advanced. And you think, for instance, of Taiwan and so on. So then you think, you know, digital sovereignty doesn't make sense. Um, so it's used, you cannot have sovereignty in other words. So it's used for specific purposes. So it's a construct that is used to, it's part of this uh, geopolitical play. Um, but again, as I said, you know, it, it, it's just a construct. It's an empty concept. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so, and this is, I, th I think what is also interesting, it's relations between states and big companies, big tech. Um, because this sovereignty plays well for both of them. So you have big tech companies saying, you know, basically don't intervene, don't regulate us, or at least not too much, because this is going to impact on a national sovereignty, because it may weaken us. And then geopolitically, the country, the state will weaken as a result. Um, and then our competitors will take over and so on and so forth. Um, so you have these terms that are being used and one narrative strengthens the other. So it's also about innovation, um, you know, so we need innovation. And then you, if you intervene, that may impact on innovation um, and things like that. So we're going around in, in circles. Now, is there a bit of a change at the moment possible in one area, and that's artificial intelligence, because here... It seems as though some of the owners of texts of content of meaning, like the Hollywood studios and the big press agencies and newspapers and television stations and radio and so on, that had so-called aggregators as their enemies because mm -hmm. the aggregators were taking their stuff and making money from it, are actually in some sort of weird alignment over the desire for a certain kind of regulation of artificial intelligence in order to protect their mutual interests in it. And it seems to me that there are also some technology firms that are manufacturers that are also interested in regulation. So whereas these entities were opposed to regulation 20 years ago with the emergence of so-called social media. Now they're saying, oh dear, that was all a terrible mistake. Look at all the harm that it's caused in terms of misinformation. So let's be careful this time because the risk is greater as robots might take over your daughter's mind. Unless you um, want us to be the hegemons. Oh yes. Um, <clears throat> but the way 
the main issue um, in these debates, in my mind, has to do with copyright, which is a very, very, very old policy issue. And even though it has been around for so long, it hasn't changed structurally. Yes. Um, so there's also this big question um, if you have these companies um, essentially fighting to see how copyright um, can be relevant and forced in the age of AI, you have others asking, you know, is the copyright regime that we have the right one? Um, <clears throat> So I think it's very, very narrow how they see it. So it has to do with copyright, fair use issues, and so on. And this is a very, very small part in the broader picture of artificial intelligence. So again, we have to be careful. As, as you said, we have giants fighting giants. Because you have really the big, if you want... Um, old uh, media giants fighting newer media giants. But it is a fight between giants. And we have to be careful when we want to do something in these areas, when we are thinking of regulation, we cannot develop rules with giants in mind big tech in mind or big media companies in mind because we'll end up just with them. So if we regulate with them in mind, um, we don't allow anything else to happen. We impose extra costs and obligations on everyone unless it's very proportionate, the regulatory intervention, and the other important thing is that we have to think about um, the power of big companies. And this is absolutely fine. But at the same time, we have to think of alternatives. How can we facilitate alternatives to come along? Because if we are fighting the bad apples, that's not enough. So we have to think of how we can cultivate a different environment that allows, nurtures something different to happen. One of the questions I was going to ask you about was to do with regulation in general. And much of your work, but not all of it, has been about the European Union, which has been absolutely crucial in restraining to a certain extent the worst horrors of US capitalism. Because despite the fact that everyone tells us Europe doesn't matter, I'm sorry, but it's the largest group of wealthy consumers in the world by far, and for the conceivable future will continue to be so in terms of one quasi-sovereign entity. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the issues of supranational regulation in these areas that confront a body like the EU versus, say, India or the United States? Um, so if you think 
if you think about the US nowadays, big tech comes to mind. Um, same with China. Yes, so China has big tech as well. India, no big tech company comes to mind. Um, but I may be wrong. And then you think of Europe. Can you name a, a European big tech company? I guess not. Well, uh, uh, I mean, there are companies in Europe that have interests in telecommunications and newspapers and television and so on. Mm-hmm. But there isn't anything like an Apple or a Google. Indeed. Um, or a Meta. Um, so what, in a way, Europe offers is a regulatory framework. <clears throat> um, so Europe has been influential, not just within the European borders, but also beyond that, if you think of um, um, GDPR. Um, so this is the so-called Brussels effect. So what happens in Europe can influence developments beyond Europe. Um, so right now, the EU is working on an Artificial Intelligence Act that has not been formally adopted yet. Um, these regulatory initiatives can take many, many years. Um, and GDPR was one good example of that, but then finally it was adopted. What's happening right now, actually, in re- with regards to the AI Act, is that some countries have started having uh, second thoughts around it, um, one of them being France, um, because France has some startups in AI, private companies, uh, um, and they have started thinking that maybe some of the provisions in the Act may adversely affect these startups. Um, so you have some internal disagreements on top of the strong disagreements from big tech and the US. So we're kind of, well, no one knows exactly what is going to be agreed in the end. Um, but this is where we are at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting to see how, you know, what's happening domestically within states can suddenly change their position. Um, Yes. So just to help out people who may not know that GDPR stands for General Data Protection Regulation, which is uh, a European Union uh, policy that is meant to protect information, privacy. And it had a, a chilling effect on executives at Google and Facebook when it was coming into play because it promised to wipe out certain parts of people's history that they quite legitimately didn't wish to have known Mm -hmm. to circulate. And 
uh, in the days when it was conceived and brought into use, there seems to be complete domination of this sphere by the United States. And the anxiety was that that world was unregulated and open to incredible intrusion into people's lives in ways that were unseemly, I think it's fair to say. Yes, so that's a great answer, and thank you for explaining that. Uh, I love the fact that la gloire reasserts itself, and the French, <laughs> once they find there, have a handful of companies that might not benefit from their notion of protecting people, just throw that out, to throw that away. <laughs> it's, I didn't know about that, but I can't say I'm surprised. Yes. But I mean, you know, it, it can be any country. Um, I mean, the example was France, but, you know, any country you can think of would have done the same, will oh, do the same. Of course. And the reality that a lot of people outside the EU don't realize is that most of what goes on is done because Germany and France want it to be done. Mm -hmm. And they pay most of the money they have most of the power. And so it will be because they have greater economic tentacles mm -hmm. than anybody else, uh, which is not always a bad thing. It was certainly a useful counterpoint to the horrors of Britain when it was fortunate enough to be a member of the EU. That aside, I mean, uh, living in Spain, I look around me and I realise what an incredible boon the EU has been to a country like this, which was chronically underdeveloped economically because of dictatorship mm -hmm. uh, and Catholicism over so many decades, as well as having a decadent form of imperialism hamstringing it. And just how without that EU investment, this place would just be a joke, would be a crumbling joke. But it's not because it has all this infrastructure that really works. And yeah, I agree. Population. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, anyway. <laughs> enough of my uh, issues back to your questions and some of the, the valuable work that you've done what sort of regulation do you think is valuable especially in the field of competition policy which is one of your fields mm -hmm. of expertise what sort of competition do we need to be to have encouraged or facilitated through policy um the rise of big tech has raised very fundamental questions um, about competition policy. Um, competition policy, and I'm thinking of antitrust. For a long time, the dominant thinking was that dominance allowing companies to become big, for instance, is not necessarily bad if that growth um, wouldn't harm consumers. And that meant price harm. So, for instance, if a company was to grow big, I don't know, think of a supermarket chain. Okay. Um, so if you would end up with a monopoly supermarket, 
that wouldn't necessarily be bad um, as long as consumers wouldn't suffer as in paying higher prices as a result. And then you think about big tech and um, social media. There is no price as in numerical price that we pay to use social media. For a very good reason, uh, social media have a different business model. Their business model relies on us users not having to pay to access social media. We pay through other means, through our attention and through our data. Um, and to do that, social media companies want us not having uh, to pay like a price entry barrier so that more and more of us can uh, access uh, social media and spend hours and hours on them. So then you you can see how competition policy as understood in the 80s and 90s made no sense because you cannot prove harm to consumers if your understanding of consumer harm is price harm. Now, even in economic terms, this understanding of harm is extremely narrow because it doesn't account for harm to competitors. So it's a very specific, narrow understanding of harm, um, of economic harm. And then there is nothing about social harm, political democratic harm that competition policy can account for. So this thinking has started to change very, very slowly and gradually. Um, the other thing with antitrust cases is that if you look at the history of big antitrust cases, they have been extremely lengthy, um, reactive, so a big problem first, and then we think of intervening and doing something about it. And uncertain. So different outcomes um, in different cases. So the new thinking is rather than being reactive, let's be proactive. So let's start to think about obligations that we impose on big companies, um, so-called gatekeepers and so on, so that we can prevent problems or at least the severity of problems. This is the thinking around the Digital Services Act um, in the European Union uh, and the Digital Markets Act. So this is the new thinking that has come along. So this is one aspect, one um, Another big problem, um, contributing factor to why we have big tech today has to do with mergers and acquisitions because these big companies have been allowed to grow by taking over acquiring promising competitors. They have acquired an incredible number of companies over the years 
even in a single year, I think, um, was it Google? Um, in, uh, it was a publication by the, the Federal Trades Commission in the United States. Now I forgot when, which year that um, refers to, but it was like, you know, like 800 companies that they acquired in a single year. And once, you know, once you have allowed them to do that, and there have been some high profile cases, for instance, when Facebook bought Instagram, when they bought uh, WhatsApp, and so on. Um, so you have these high profile cases, you give them permission to do that, maybe with very, very few conditions. But then you cannot tell them, okay, now you have to demerge. Yes. So you have allowed them to become that big um, and grow through mergers and acquisitions. And we are kind of, of stuck. Well, the other thing that can happen, of course, and I'm thinking here of the gaming industry over the last 20 years, is that little companies get going the people who own them encourage everybody in them to keep working, keep working, keep working, you know, 90, 100, 120 hour weeks with very little, if any money, but the promise that eventually we'll go to market and then I'll give you some shares. But in fact, the plan is that once the game is not that close to completion, but looks interesting, the person who holds the intellectual property sells it to a big company. The big company has no interest in ever developing the game, doesn't want to finish it, just wants to stop anybody else from getting it. And yes. so it gets in the way of the supposed innovation that comes from small businesses because they're designed in many cases to exploit workers and then get sold on to mm -hmm. large entities without ever coming to fruition. Mm-hmm. But but this is also the case with uh, many open source initiatives, um, even in the area of artificial intelligence. Um, and again, that's kind of um, voluntary work, yes, that you do because you're interested in, in that and so on and so forth. Um, and again, you have the same thing. So you have big companies that take over these grassroots initiatives. So then you think... You know, can there be an alternative? Can things change if this keeps on happening? Um, but there are, because, I mean, um, I'm thinking now I was involved a few years ago in an EU project looking at Internet community networks. So, I mean, you probably, and um, listeners have heard of community radio, for instance. Um, so grassroots initiatives, you know, people, a community, um, setting up their own radio station and so on. So something similar is happening in the area of internet networks. So communities joining forces and deciding we are going to build our own internet infrastructure and get the speeds that we want, for instance. Um, so it was a fascinating project. Um, 
and you have these islands of hope, if you want, yes? So an alternative that exists, it is the exception. Um, and I think as is always the question with alternatives, can these alternatives kind of mature and scale up? so that they can be a credible challenge to what we have? Question mark. Exactly, but beautifully put. I think about Fairphone as an interesting alternative to the domination of the so-called smartphone producers in terms of labor relations, anti-slavery, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, environmental concerns. Mm -hmm. uh, and no surprise that its current president or convener, I think, was previously involved not in telecommunications, but in the anti-slavery movement in the chocolate sector, mm -hmm. where most chocolate, as you know, is produced by slaves. Um, changing direction for a moment, uh, Prof M, if we could, I wanted to ask you about something else that you work on, that you didn't work on in the past, but is very important. And in Britain, where I think you're located, right now, you're, you're there right now, it's a very live issue, namely public service broadcasting. Mm -hmm. And that connects to telecommunications in a way that it didn't very much a few decades ago, even 15 years ago. But it also has its own significance because of the notion of content and the notion of public service. This is a question you're tired of being asked, so <laughs> I apologise in advance. But what is public service broadcasting? Public service broadcasting serves citizens and citizenship rather than consumers. Um, so if you think about commercial television um in its earlier days it was essentially ad supported television so you had um television stations serving audiences to advertisers um so that's the consumer logic um and equally the programming was uh, had to be commercially attractive to attract big audiences and so on and so forth. Um, but the starting point of public service broadcasting is to serve citizens. Um, for instance, inform them, um, help them to make sense of the societies they are in and the, the world around them. Um, entertain them and educate them. And public service broadcasting is at its best when it does all these three at the same time, inform, educate, entertain. Um, now, from the 1990s in particular onwards, public service broadcasting is often seen as a problem. Why do we have public service broadcasting? Um, markets have been liberalized. We have so many media outlets. 
public service broadcasting is an outdated concept um, that puts, for instance, limits uh, market opportunities because it offers services and content for free within quotation marks. So um, newspapers still today um, make that argument very, very strongly. Um, and they criticize the online presence of public service broadcasters. So why do you have um, the BBC um, or in Austria and so on offering news online for free? That means newspaper proprietors say that we cannot charge people to come to our websites to see news because somebody else offers that for free. So for a long time and still today, public service broadcasting is seen as a problem. But I see it totally the other way around. Public service broadcasting is part of the solution that we need today. Um, public service broadcasting is very challenging nowadays, given the media environment and the political environment that's quite hostile that we have in many countries. Um, but the reasons that make it challenging are the very reasons that we need it more and more. So this is how I think about public service broadcasting. Thank you very much. That's a wonderful answer. And one of the things that I get frustrated with, actually, in current discussions is that people keep asking that question that I annoyingly posed, what is public service broadcasting, when academics have been producing information about this for, for at least 50 years and on a dedicated basis for 30 in really challenging and interesting ways. So they're just completely ignored by most of the people involved in these discussions. And I think what you say is is terribly important. Go ahead. No, yes. And I mean, um, and also another important nuanced point is that public service broadcasting is for citizens in um a sociological um with a sociological meaning so you don't have to be a legal citizen of a country uh, to be able to relate to public service broadcasting so it's about the residents if you want whoever resides in a country okay so we have to think of for instance migrants refugees and so on so it doesn't have to be citizenship um, in the legal sense of the word, but in the sociological. Yeah. Uh, Speaking as somebody who is one of those people and is currently without papers, I quite agree, Prof. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Yes. We, yeah. we've, we've got about 10 minutes left, and I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. Mm-hmm. After that, I would want to throw it to you to see if there are things you wish to add or subtract. Nothing about the fact that I'm without papers, okay? Okay. Yes, yes, understood. <laughs> <laughs> Only 14% of listeners to the podcast are based in Spain, and probably few of them are 
people in the ideological state apparatus or the repressive state apparatus, so I might be all right. We'll see. Uh (laughs) So the first question is a slightly personal one, and I hope that's not too impertinent, to ask, going back, 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 how you got interested in all these things? What was your, as you were growing up or going to university or whatever, what was the formation that you entered into that you became part of? Well, um, I started by studying political science and international relations. So power at the very heart of, of this. And then it was at the time in the 1990s when media started becoming this big thing when liberalization started. Um, so that there were many things happening um, around the media and telecommunications, um, new transmission technologies, cable satellite, new terrestrial broadcasters, um, and perhaps under the radar, more under the radar, What, as I was saying, telecommunications. So going from monopolies to mobile telephony that was often the first taste of competition and market liberalization Um, and then many more things happening in telecoms so that was a very exciting time I found it very very exciting Um, and at the same time because originally my work was about the European Union as you said It was also an exciting different time for the European Union because it was around the time of the single market project, okay? Um, Which was quite a fascinating project um, to see it really developing and what was going to happen and how. Um, So this is really what attracted me to media and telecommunications um, because there was a lot happening. So it was in the early days of market liberalization and restructuring. That's really interesting. I studied the same things as you, but 15 years earlier. So (laughs) we didn't look at any of this stuff. (laughs) Yes. My last question to you, Prof. Uh, Michalis, is to ask how you find shit out. How do you discover things? How do you go about your research? Um, well, first of all, doing live policy research. So, you know, trying to follow policy that it's still unfolding still in the process of making is quite challenging. Um, It kind of gets easier because I've been doing it for many, many years now. So at least I have a better understanding of how things work and how policy works, how the process works. Um. So you have to keep up with 
um, the policy process. So that's from agenda setting to drafting. So all the documentation, if you want, and the institutional process. <clears throat> but you also have to keep in touch with those making the policy. So policymakers, lobbyists, um, interests affected. Um, and to that, you also have to include civil society, citizens, and so on, um, that are significantly less represented, if at all represented, um, but of course are affected by whatever is being decided or not being decided, because policy is action as well as inaction. So it's a hard job, but um, I think it's fun, um, challenging, but um, yes, uh, I really like it. And as I said, you can now talk about it at dinner parties, whereas you couldn't <laughs> 15 years ago. Yes, plus it was also a very, very, very white male-dominated environment. Yeah. Um, but um, yes, I mean, it has started to change, which is good. And that's true both at the at the intellectual level, at the activist level, and at the policy implementation and program management level, um, massively male-dominated and white male-dominated, as you yes. say. That is one of the dramatic shifts that we can discern, I think, mm -hmm. in the last, really the last 10 years, I would say. And it's yes. very, very important. Because it means that more and more so-called stakeholders are actually involved. Now... Mm -hmm. The class issue is another one that needs to be gotten through. And the, the migrant issue is another one that isn't uh, mm -hmm. adequately represented. So, Prof, is there anything you would like to add to what we've discussed? Or perhaps you'd like to subtract from what you said? Either way, is there a topic we haven't touched on that you'd like to mention, a publication you'd like to mention, or something that we did describe but where you want to add? Um. No, nothing to subtract. Um, I'm also interested, and I know that this is a topic close to your heart, and actually your work has uh, inspired me, um, what you've done with um, um, Richard Maxwell. Um, so I'm interested now in public service media and environmental sustainability and what public service media can do for environmental sustainability, which is a very big topic. Um, but I have started doing work in this area. Well, that's great to know. Uh, I think it is an important topic. And it's Rick's birthday today. Oh, is it? Oh, fantastic. I, just, I wish him happy birthday. <laughs> immediately prior to calling you, I uh -huh. wrote him a happy birthday message. So Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he'll find my message as well when he wakes up. It's still early. <laughs> so thank you so much, Professor Michalis. It's been thank you chatting to you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I, I really enjoyed it.